Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... This period of open borders 100 years ago and a period of a lot more immigration restriction today, there's something about the common immigrant experience that really tells the American story. Leia Bustan on the myths and reality of immigration past and present. Hey, everybody, before we get to the show, just another reminder that executive producer Amy Keene and I are going to be doing a listener Q&A episode soon. So if you have a question for either of us that you'd like us to answer on the show about the economy or the podcast itself or really anything else, please email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. That's hello at B-A-Z-A-A-R-A-U-D-I-O dot com. Or you can find me on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia. Now, for today's show, there is a little bit of simple background knowledge that's quite helpful to know. The first peak for U.S. immigration took place from roughly 1880 to 1920. And that's back when, for instance, a lot of immigrants were coming in through Ellis Island in New York. And back when, for the most part, if you could get yourself to the U.S., it was pretty easy to stay. There was one big notable exception to this, which were immigrants from Asian countries. There were tough restrictions on their arrival early on. But otherwise, lots of people were moving to the U.S., especially from parts of Europe. And at the peak, immigrants were about 15 percent of the population, just a little bit less. And then came a series of laws in the 1920s that sharply cut back on immigration and had that effect for more than four decades until the 1960s when they were loosened up again. And since then, since the 1960s, immigration has been climbing back towards another peak to where it is now at, again, just less than 15 percent. But this time, most of the immigrants are coming from Latin America and Asia. And what these immigration peaks give us is a way to compare how immigration worked back then in the earlier peak versus how it works now. How quickly are immigrants integrating into the economy? What about their kids? How quickly are the immigrants of today assimilating? versus the immigrants of the past. But you can only answer those questions if you can collect the data. And that's tough, especially for the earlier immigration peak. But that's also where today's guest comes in. Leia Bustan is an economic historian, and she's the co-author, along with Ron Abramitsky, of a new and truly exceptional book called Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. I love this book because of the way it complicates and in some cases just outright contradicts some of the prevailing impressions of how immigration works and how immigration now compares against that earlier peak. And it does so using a fascinating and cutting edge approach to gathering data. So Leah and I talk about all this and more in our chat. Here it is. Leia Bustan, welcome to The New Bazaar. Great to be here. So the title of the book is Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. And it comes from a quote that I actually want to read now because it's kind of instrumental to explaining what this book is all about. So this is a quote from an unknown Italian immigrant, and it's painted on the wall of the Ellis Island Museum. And here's the whole quote. I came to America because I heard the streets were paved with gold. When I got here, I found out three things. First, the streets were not paved with gold. Second, they weren't paved at all. And third, I was expected to pave them, unquote. I love this because it turns out to be sort of representative of the common immigrant experience uh, back in the days of the Ellis Island arrivals, but also now, and it speaks to your motivation for this entire project. So I'd love to hear more about it. Where did you get the idea for this project? And can you just kind of give us some sense of what it was that you wanted to show in putting together all this research and writing this book? Well, we're economic historians, and so we've been working on the Ellis Island generation for around 10 years now. And we kept getting surprised by politicians and pundits that would refer back to immigrants a century ago and say, well, we all know that those immigrants were great, that they built the country, that they moved up from rags to riches. But, you know, in comparison to today's immigrants, we have some concerns. All of the positive statements about 
immigrants 100 years ago were shared very much across the political spectrum. It could be politicians like Barack Obama or it could be pundits like Rush Limbaugh. This myth or this belief that the Ellis Island generation was really different and where they parted ways was in the views about immigration today. Um, so we really set about to go into the big data and see is this true? Is there something really magical about the Ellis Island generation that they were the ones paving the roads? Um, and is there something different about immigrants today? Yeah, and what you found kind of complicates the narrative about both the Ellis Island generation and about modern immigrants, the, the folks who are moving here now. Uh, and we're going to talk all about that. But first, I actually want to talk about the kind of groundbreaking work you did in putting together all the data necessary for this. So tell me about the time that you and your co-author, Ron, almost got sued by Ancestry.com. Well, Ron and I were walking uh, at a conference around 10, 15 years ago and trying to brainstorm how could we learn more about immigrants who came to the U.S. 100 years ago. Because the data is not great for that generation, right? Yeah, the data is not something you can just download. Um, and so I had just heard about some data that was put together in Norway. And I thought, well, maybe this is a way for us to follow people across the Atlantic. So we tried to connect Norwegian kids who we could see in old census data in Norway um, to uh, their adulthood selves, whether they moved to the United States or whether they stayed in Norway. Yeah, to be clear, these are Norwegians who came to the U.S. a long time ago, like in that generation that came through Ellis Island in the late 19th century and early 20th century. It's that Norwegian generation that you're talking about now? Yeah, so these were kids who would be living at home around the time of the U.S. Civil War. Okay, and then they made a choice. Do I want to stay in Norway or do I want to move to the U.S.? On the Norwegian side, we had no problem getting the data. Uh, but in the U.S. side, we're like, how are we going to find out whether these guys moved to the U.S.? I know. Let's go to Ancestry.com and pretend that they're our grandparents or great-grandparents and just start looking for them one by one. Um, well, the problem is we got a little bit greedy. We said, well, if we can do this for the Norwegians, let's do this for other countries as well. And we started looking up thousands of immigrants from that period, so much so that the Ancestry.com corporate office noticed, well, our product is getting really popular these days. Why are there so many searches for people who came to the country all the way back in the early 1900s. Yeah. And they're like, so they're like, what is going on? And then they got in touch with you and they said, what? Well, they noticed that all of the searches were coming from one account. Um, <laughs> so that didn't seem right to them. They got in touch with Ron and he, you know, arrived to a phone call from the Ancestry lawyers telling us to cease and desist. And I think Ancestry thought we were trying to take the data and repackage it and resell it because they sell this genealogy product to the public. We let them know that we were just academics and please let us finish our project. And, you know, they did relent. But for a moment there, Ron really thought that he was potentially going to get fired from his job or go to jail because our research project was against the law. But these days, we have a good relationship with Ancestry. We have a research partnership with them. And a lot of the data underlying their product is something that researchers can now use. Yeah. And, and here's a quote from the book. All told, we were able to compile what is the first set of truly big data about immigration, unquote. So can you just kind of explain what specifically are you able to see in Ancestry.com? And then is that data that you then link to existing data for people who were in the U.S. at that time? Well, there's so much on Ancestry. What we use is the historical census records. So every 10 years, the government has to keep track of people living in the country. And as time went on, they added more and more questions. So these days, they ask about wage and salary and occupation, of course, where people are living, who else is living in their household, their kids, and so on. And so as we go back in time, we lose a little bit of this richness, but we do have occupation and industry information for everyone in the country going back to 1900. And we're able to follow people that we observe in that year, 1900 or 1910, 
forward in time to see how well are they doing as they move through time in the U.S. and then also follow their kids who are living in the household all the way forward to 1940, which is the last year where that historical census data is available. Yeah, it's a fascinating methodological story in addition to the actual findings of your research. So let's start with some myths that you shattered. Uh, Myth number one, the idea that poor immigrants who arrived back then in the Ellis Island generation, as, as we're calling it, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, rose up quickly, you know, showed up with 50 cents in their pocket and quickly were catching up to U.S. workers because that is an idea that is sometimes used to contrast what's happening today where poor immigrants arrive and they might do better over time, but they never quite catch up to U.S.-born workers. And you find, though, that it doesn't necessarily apply to the poor immigrants who arrived back then either, that the rags-to-riches story is kind of complicated. So take us through that. Well, there's two ways in which that myth is wrong. First is that not everybody arrived in rags in that period. So around half of the immigrants from Europe to the U.S. around 1900 were actually already doing quite well when they arrived. And these would be immigrants from Germany or from England or Scotland. They arrived from countries that were already either ahead of the U.S. or neck and neck with the U.S. in terms of economic development and education. There were no rags for them to rise from. The other half of immigrants from Europe did start out poor, and those immigrants did achieve some level of upward mobility over their own lifetime, but the pace of upward mobility was pretty slow, and actually no different from the pace of upward mobility for immigrants today. Yeah, what's interesting about that is that you can see how people looking to the past might confuse these things. They might look to the immigrants who came here and already had a lot of money and just assume that they came from rags. And that turns out not to be true. And then you try to find the story of immigrants who arrived in rags or from rags, if if you want to use that terminology. And it turns out that Yes, when they came here, they did, by the way, improve their lot in life. They made more money than they were making in their home country, but they weren't making as much money and they didn't have as much economic mobility as the average U.S. worker. And so it's interesting to think about how people might be confusing these narratives because they haven't separated them the way you've separated them. Well, that's exactly right. I think one of the factors here is that because so many European immigrants were already doing pretty well right off the boat, we may assume, oh, they arrived with very little and they made it on their own. And that's not true. But the other thing is, even for those immigrants who were poor, we're talking four or five generations ago. And so sometimes that first generation does get lost to memory. So when I think back to my own immigrant story, I think about my grandfather, but my grandfather was himself a child of immigrants. He was not the immigrant himself. And so we have to think about my great-grandfather, and that's a little bit too far in the past for me to have a good picture. So I actually went, as part of our research, you know, one out of the millions of families that we followed was my own family. Like, I'm actually in the data set, or my family is, and we can see that my great-grandfather, he never changed his occupational status. He never moved up over his lifetime. And in fact, all of his older kids had to leave school and go to work to help support the family. And so it was really just my grandfather and his younger brother. They were the youngest of of eight um, who were able to finish high school and then go to college. Yeah. And I think also that the reason that people sometimes get these stories confused is that they look at the rich countries of today and assume that immigrants from those countries in the past were also coming from relatively well-off countries. So you take the example of Norway You make the point that, yeah, a lot of Norwegian immigrants came in that Ellis Island generation. But at the time, Norway was quite a poor country to the point where when Norwegian immigrants showed up to the U.S. in the past, they actually doubled their earnings upon arrival, which is something that also still applies today when people arrive from poor countries now. Well, all the more so now, actually. So from what we find, immigrants from Europe were able to double their income. These days, other economists have estimated that immigrants can triple or quadruple their income by moving to the U.S. today. And I think that has something to do with the fact that borders are much more restricted now 
than they were to Europeans 100 years ago. And so, so many people could come from Europe that eventually um, some of the wage gaps started to dissipate between those sending areas and the United States. Yeah, and I want to cite a fact that you include in the book, which is that right now, nine of the 10 countries that send a large number of immigrants to the U.S. are relatively poor countries. So if you were to rank all the countries in the world by how much money their citizens make, the countries that account for most of the immigrants coming to the U.S. tend to be between the middle and the bottom half in those rankings. And so I I think a lot of skeptics of immigration are going to look at something like that and they'll say, well, with a lot of these immigrants coming here from these poor countries, how are the immigrants ever going to catch up? Aren't their families just going to be a burden on the U.S.? And your point is that, first of all, it's true that the initial immigrants who move here won't catch up on average to U.S.-born workers, but they will do better over time, and their children will catch up to U.S.-born workers. And then the second point you make is that this is the same as what happened to immigrants 100 years ago. So those immigrants that all the politicians now agree made America a country of immigrants and a melting pot and so on also never caught up. It was their kids, same as today. That's exactly right. I mean, there's no reason to expect that immigrants from very poor countries today are necessarily going to have the same trajectory as immigrants in the past. And so I think what surprised us the most about our research is when we started to look into the upward mobility of children of immigrants and we compared the past to present, we find just strikingly similar patterns of upward mobility. And so we're talking today about immigrants who could be coming from some very poor countries in Central America, like El Salvador, Honduras, or some very poor countries in Asia, like Laos. And so the parent generation might be a generation that never even had the opportunity to go to high school. And so then when we look at the children of immigrants from these poor countries, we might worry, well, maybe they'll somehow be stuck. Yes, they're in the United States, they can go to public school, but maybe they won't be able to move up very quickly. And we find that myth is just blown out of the water by the data, and that children, even of immigrants from poor countries, are able to rise. Yeah, so specifically, you look at the children of immigrants who are in the 25th percentile of the income distribution in the U.S. In other words, these are people who are not super well off, And you actually find that those children have more upward economic mobility than do the children of U.S.-born parents who are also at the 25th percentile. So if you take these two sets of parents who are not well off in the U.S., who don't make a lot of money, the children of immigrants tend to rise up more than the children of the U.S.-born. But the reasons why are both interesting and also complicated, and they don't sort of match the easy narrative that is often cited of like, well, the children of immigrants have a better work ethic or that there's something inherently cultural going on. Uh, Yeah. So let's go through a couple of those reasons, starting with location. I love this conclusion. I love what you found here. So explain that uh, that reason for why the children of poor immigrants rise up more than do the children of U.S. born. No, you're absolutely right. When we talk to people about our findings, their first assumption is, well, it must be that immigrant parents just value education more or they're just more hardworking. And so that's why their kids are able to rise. Um, And what we're finding is a different type of immigrant attribute. What's really special about immigrants is that they're footloose. They've already made a decision to leave their family of origin, their country of origin, and everything they know to come to the U.S. to seek economic opportunity. So once immigrants are in the U.S., they tend to settle in locations that provide upward economic mobility for everyone. And this is especially true in the past, and it's true still today. In the past, immigrants avoided the U.S. South almost entirely. So at a time when 15% of the country was foreign-born, the South was only 2% foreign-born. And why is that? Well, the South was a very agricultural region, primarily cotton growing, and not a place for upward mobility for anyone, either black or white Americans. Yeah, by the way, I just want to be clear. You're talking about that earlier immigration peak back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. There were not a lot of immigrants going to the South because the South was poorer overall than the North. 
Exactly. So that's a good example of how immigrants are sort of, you know, heat-seeking missiles. They're looking for the place where there are uh, manufacturing jobs back 100 years ago or where there are abundant service jobs today. And those are locations that tend to be highly upwardly mobile for all people who live in those areas. So when we start to compare neighbors, you know, if we take immigrant families who are living next to U.S.-born families and compare those kids, we actually don't see much of an immigrant advantage anymore. So what that tells us is that a lot of the advantage that we see overall nationwide is coming from the geography of where immigrants choose to settle. Yeah, and I assume, by the way, Leah, that those places are, for example, the higher cost cities on the coasts and maybe some other big cities where there's an abundance of jobs and perhaps even some existing immigrant communities where new immigrants can move to, at least initially. Is that right? That's exactly right today. And so immigrants are concentrating in big coastal cities. Those cities are expensive with high housing prices. And immigrants do tend to live in smaller units double up with some extended family, and even save in order to send some money home through remittances. And so immigrants seem to be more willing to move to those high-cost areas. And so you could turn the question around and ask, well, why aren't the U.S.-born families moving, you know, if there are opportunities in places that might provide for a better upward mobility for their kids. Um, But U.S.-born families are born into a location. You know, they're born into a place where their family already is living and settled. And so some portion of those families do move away, but many do stay close to home. And if we look at internal migrants, so people who are born in the U.S. but then leave their state of birth, their kids actually look very similar to the, the children of immigrants. So it has something to do with being willing to move. Yeah, quite interesting, and and I think worth emphasizing for our listeners, the idea that when the children of poor U.S.-born parents do move to those cities where there's a lot of jobs and where there's a lot of economic mobility, that their upward trajectory is very similar to that of immigrants whose children move to those cities as well, right? So it, it ends up being that you have this like kind of almost a natural experiment where you can see both of those things. And so, as you said, the question is, why don't more children of U.S.-born parents move to those cities? But that's a tough problem. People do have roots and they have families and they have friendships and existing networks and things of that nature. And they might just have a close connection to the place of their birth, which is a very personal thing. I sort of understand it. So it's a tricky thing to solve for if you're trying to get the children of poor U.S.-born parents more upward mobility because you're going against something that is quite human, right? But for immigrants who have already moved here, they can do it because their life has already been full of risky change and risky migration. So it's maybe just not that much more to ask to move to the place where there are jobs instead of where there are fewer jobs, right? Right. That's exactly how I think about it. Um, I wouldn't want to make any policy prescriptions on the basis of this finding, because I think that, you know, many people born in the U.S. who choose to live close to home are doing so because there's more to life than just, you know, earning a living for yourself or placing your kids in a location where they could earn more in the next generation. There's also all of those family ties and those connection to place. So I don't think that, you know, I would want to say, well, let's try to incentivize other people to move. But just descriptively, as social scientists, um, we find it really fascinating that geography is such an important part of how immigrant families are able to get ahead. Yeah. There's one other possible explanation that you note that might go along with location for why the children of poor immigrants move up the income ladder more than the children of poor American-born parents, which is that Oftentimes, even immigrants who have a lot of skills or a lot of education end up getting jobs in the U.S. that they're, in a sense, overqualified for. But they have to take those jobs maybe because they don't speak English yet or because they don't have the same network of contacts that they had in their home country. So this is like the cliche of the foreign doctor who becomes a taxi driver. And so even though these immigrants don't make a lot of money in the U.S., they might still be able to transmit some of that advanced skill set to their kids. So either through an emphasis on education or maybe even helping their kids do well in school or something else. And that 
is kind of consistent with that stereotypical story of immigrant kids feeling a lot of pressure and a lot of burden to do well in school, I think. Right. It might mean something very different to be um, at the 25th percentile of the income distribution, you know, to be among the working poor if you are born abroad and you're leaving everything you know and you're trying to enter the labor market in English in a language that's not your own, then it might mean for someone who is born in the U.S. So when we think about why children rise, it's not only that their parents are providing them with income and resources, financial resources, but also that they're providing a home or an emphasis on education. They might uh, be able to help with homework and all sorts of other factors that are hard for us to see in the data. I should note, though, that the children of immigrants from different countries have quite varied experiences as well. So their economic mobility does often differ by the country of origin. And this has to do with the complicated effects of race and gender. So can you kind of take us through that? Right. So on average, we're seeing that the children of immigrants raised at the bottom of the income distribution are rising faster than the children of the U.S. born. But there's one group for whom that's not true, and that is the sons of immigrants from uh, many Caribbean countries, Haiti, Jamaica, and Trinidad and Tobago. Now, the daughters of immigrants from those countries are doing very well. They're doing better than many other immigrant countries, let alone U.S.-born. So there's something, as you say, about this intersection between race and gender that may have something to do with how Caribbean neighborhoods are policed, how likely are the sons of Caribbean parents to be caught up um, in interactions with law enforcement. We also want to mention that there are a few majority Black countries where the sons are doing very well as well. Uh, So Dominican Republic and Nigeria are two countries that we can isolate in the modern data and where the sons are are doing remarkably well. So it's a complicated story that goes beyond just race. It has something to do also with, you know, region of origin, something about the Caribbean community, uh, the intersection with gender. Here's something else that you occasionally hear from critics of immigration or people who are worried about immigration, which is that immigrants are a burden on the U.S. taxpayer. Again, important to account for the role of the children here because you expose this as a myth as well. A few years ago, there was a big National Academy of Sciences report, you know, five, 600 pages, and they come to the conclusion that immigrants are not a burden on the taxpayer because the second generation more than pays for any debts of their parents. A lot of what the parents do need are additional public schooling slots for the kids. And so many of the costs associated with the first generation is that we have to expand our schools. But then that investment pays off and the second generation children of immigrants are doing remarkably well and they're paying more into the tax system than their parents were taking out. Now, I'm not sure how many people read that 600-page National Academy of Sciences report, you know. So what we're finding in the book is very consistent with that and kind of tells the underlying story about why this would be true, but with many personal narratives interwoven. So we do hope that the message will start to break through. I want to talk now about cultural assimilation. And you find something similar for cultural assimilation that you do for economic integration, which is that it proceeds at about the same pace now as it did 100 years ago. You also write that not everything can be measured when it comes to cultural assimilation. Like, it's really hard to measure whether people are watching different movies now that they've moved to the U.S. or whether they're listening to American music in addition to the music of their home country, you know, the food that they're eating now, how their cuisine might have changed. But there are some things that you can measure. For example, whether they name their kids more American names over time, whether they remain living in immigrant neighborhoods in ethnic enclaves or whether they move out or maybe their children move out, whether they are learning English uh, and whether they are marrying U.S.-born spouses. I want to focus on naming conventions because I thought this was fascinating. So uh, explain what happens in terms of immigrants who move to the country naming their kids either very strongly ethnic names or do they shift towards American names over time? Well, first of all, what is an American name? That's really hard to measure in and of itself. And that changes a lot over time. So some of the names that were the most associated with being an immigrant 100 years ago were Eric and Kurt. And I couldn't think of more kind of 
quintessentially American sounding names these days. So first we have to go to the data and see what names are we talking about. Um, and so with our big historical census data, we can count up how many Eric's are born abroad and how many Eric's are born in the US. And we can compare the two. So we can get an index of how American sounding a name is, but allow that index to change as naming trends change. So that's one thing. And then we followed immigrant families as they arrived in the U.S. and had multiple kids. The first kid they may have after a year or two, and the second kid maybe five or six years um, into their stay in the U.S. And what we found is that the first kid was often given a very ethnic-sounding name, a name associated with the home country, and that immigrants were shifting away from those ethnic-sounding names as they spent more time in the U.S. They never completely close what we call the naming gap, you know, so they never end up picking uh, the names that are exactly the same as their U.S.-born neighbors. But they do start shifting away from ethnic names over time. And what's really interesting is that they do it at the same pace now as they did 100 years ago. And my stereotype about European immigrants 100 years ago is that they had to Americanize, that they all chose names like Jeffrey or David, you know, names that were very kind of standard and, you know, that they wanted to present themselves as being American. Whereas today I have this impression of, well, you know, there's more acceptance of multiculturalism and immigrants might be holding on to their culture longer. Um, and in fact, what we're finding in the data is that there's a very similar pace of shifting away from ethnic names. Yeah, here's another fact in the book, and I'm, and I'm quoting you. The immigrant groups most accused of unwillingness to assimilate Southern and Eastern Europeans in the past, Mexicans today, actually tended to assimilate the fastest, unquote. So that's another kind of fear that's dispelled, though it also makes me wonder if maybe the reason for that very quick assimilation is precisely because these immigrants know that the native-born population is most worried about them and most suspicious of them. Exactly. We can't look into the hearts of these immigrant families and understand the motivations behind their decisions. All we can see is the choices that they're making about where to live, who to marry, how to name their kids. And so if we see that immigrant groups that are pointed to by politicians at the time and said, these are immigrant groups that will never assimilate, are in fact the ones that assimilate the fastest, it could be very much a defensive posture. You know, I don't want my kids to be teased on the playground. I don't want my kids to lose out on job opportunities. So I'll do everything I can do to try to help them fit in. Yeah. And this also is related to another finding, which is that refugees, so these are typically people who move to the country when they're fleeing a war or when they're fleeing persecution in their home countries, end up assimilating faster even than other immigrants as well. Right. So there are other teams of economists and sociologists who have looked at refugees today, and they find that refugees in the U.S. are moving up the economic ladder the fastest. So we wanted to assess whether this was has always been true. And the refugee system really only began recently in the 1980s, but we were able to go back to historical data and get narratives of how immigrants describe their reason for leaving Europe. And some people describe fleeing from persecution. Others describe coming for economic motivations. And those who are fleeing from persecution actually assimilated the fastest. It kind of makes sense. If you don't think you have a country to go back to, if you're worried that your country is war-torn or that you would face persecution if you go home, then you know that this is it. You have to fit in in, in the United States. And so you make it work. Oh, that's interesting. It's, it's a kind of an all or nothing proposition. You've made the choice to completely uproot your life. And in some sense, I guess the connection to that home country is perhaps severed a little bit more than for other immigrants. And so it's like, well, this is definitely my new home. I need to make this work as soon as I possibly can. Is, is that basically the thinking here? Right. Now, we may not think about this group, but there are a lot of immigrants who return home. Mm -hmm. And this is true now, and this was also true in the past. So somewhere between a quarter and a third of immigrants return home, and that's been very consistent over time. So if you're thinking about your stay in the U.S. as temporary, 
and you're just here to save up and go home or to maybe get a degree and then you're going to go work back in your home country, then your incentive to really become American um, might be smaller. It might be lessened. But refugees, when they come to the U.S., they really have severed ties. Um, and so they make different choices about how to fit in. I want to now talk a little bit about how immigration affects the economic prospects of U.S.-born workers. And there's a long section about this in the book, but I actually want to focus on two different historical events that reveal what can happen when immigration gets cut off. So the first is what happened to the city of Cleveland during that earlier migration peak from more than 100 years ago. And really quickly, I need to set this up for our listeners. So Back in the late 1800s, a lot of Southern European and Eastern European immigrants started moving to Cleveland and working in the factories in Cleveland. And this was during a time when if the immigrants could get to the U.S., it was easy for them to stick around. I mean, legally, they were welcome to come. And this continued all the way up until 1920. And then starting in 1920, the U.S. passed a series of laws that made immigrating here a lot more difficult, but especially for those immigrants coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. So essentially these laws restricted, I mean really severely restricted, the number of people who could immigrate to the U.S. from those countries. And the point of these laws was to force the owners of factories and other businesses in places like Cleveland to instead hire American U.S.-born workers and to raise the wages of those workers. Because now those workers that were born in the U.S. were no longer facing competition from immigrants to get those jobs. You found that that is not what happened, though. So can you tell us what did happen instead? In some of the work that we've done, we've compared cities like Cleveland to cities like Cincinnati, who start out very similar. Uh, These are two cities in Ohio that both had a very similar immigrant community in terms of size, but very different in terms of composition. So Cleveland, like you mentioned, was heavily Southern and Eastern European, whereas Cincinnati was more Irish and German. So when the border closes down to immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, it's Cleveland that's really affected more so than Cincinnati. And so if it's true that somehow the local workers are going to benefit, that's where we should see it. We should see it in cities like Cleveland. And yet we don't find any growth in income or wages for workers in the city of Cleveland after the border shuts down. So we tried to understand what's going on. And it turns out that in manufacturing cities like Cleveland, firms were able to turn to other sources of labor. They didn't necessarily turn to the worker next door. So first of all, Mexican and Canadian immigrants were not restricted. And so suddenly, Mexican and Canadian immigrants began showing up in the city to take some of these factory jobs. And in addition, there were workers from around the country that began moving to Cleveland. So these would be internal migrants that were taking factory positions that used to be held by Italians or Poles or Czechs, that sort of thing. So there's always another source of labor out there for firms to tap into. If you think about what this means for today, It's not necessarily true that the only items on the menu for for firms these days are immigrant workers or U.S.-born workers. If immigration shuts down today, there's always the opportunity to outsource and to have some of the parts of the production process done overseas or simply to move your factory overseas entirely and to do all of your production in a country with lower paid workers. And so in the example of Cleveland, as you just described, The factory owners basically found other pools of labor, other workers that still were not U.S.-born workers based in Cleveland. But those immigration restrictions also affected farms, which also back then were employing a lot of Southern and Eastern European workers. And so these farms suddenly also had a labor shortage. But what they did was a little different. They also automated away a lot of that work. So they bought more tractors and other machinery to take the place of the work that was being previously done by immigrants. And I think a lot of folks hearing that might think, well, that's not so bad. I mean, automation is a good thing. It can raise productivity growth in the economy. And so maybe this policy wasn't all bad. It didn't deliver what it promised, which is more jobs and higher wages for U.S.-born workers. But automation generally is a good thing. So 
in a second, Leia, we're going to talk about another more modern, I think, more complex example of this. But can you kind of just give us your thoughts on this idea that, well, if you can automate away some of the work, that's fine. Right. So there were a number of European immigrants who also were working as farm labor at this period. Um, And so we tend to forget about those folks. Some of the Norwegians we were talking about, for example, would come to the U.S. and they wouldn't come to big cities or work in factories. They would go straight to farms and work as farm labor. So when the border was restricted in the 1920s, it's also the case that farmers and others in rural areas lost out on labor force as well. And that's where we see farmers turning to automation, turning to more capital intensive forms of production and cultivation. You might say, well, that's a good thing. And you also these days might say, well, outsourcing is efficient, you know, or moving your factory overseas is efficient as well. And so maybe there are economic efficiencies that we see after the border closes as, well, necessity is the mother of invention. Now that I don't have farm labor, I have to turn to uh, more capital intensive forms of farming. But that's not the way that the policy was sold to the public. Restricting the border was sold as, well, now the jobs that immigrants were taking are going to go to you. And that's not how firms reacted. They didn't necessarily turn to the workers next door, but they found other ways of producing. Um, And so the benefits may have come to firms and not necessarily to U.S.-born workers. The second event I want to discuss was the end of what was called the Bracero Program, which was a program that allowed seasonal Mexican workers to come to the U.S. and work on U.S. farms and produce agricultural products, food, essentially. And this program ended in the 1960s And it had all kinds of interesting effects as well. And I want to discuss that now. So what was the immediate result of ending this program, which made it harder for Mexican seasonal workers to come to U.S. farms and work there? So ending the Bracero program was proposed by President Johnson. And the goal was precisely to provide more employment opportunities for domestic U.S.-born workers. So the thought was, well, if Mexicans stop coming, there'll be jobs now for U.S.-born workers in the fields. A harvest or two went by, and it was very hard for farmers to attract U.S.-born workers at the wages that made cultivation profitable. So wages did not rise, and instead, farmers turned to mechanization or automation of the harvest. So there were some crops that you could innovate and you could pick those crops by machine rather than by hand. There were other crops that it's just hard to do. And so those crops fell away from US production for a while. Farmers shifted over to the types of production that were easier to be done by machine. So when I think back to what was in the grocery store when I was a kid, it was like iceberg lettuce and those kinds of like hard tomatoes that were really easy to ship. And these days there's an abundance of fruits and vegetables, some of which have to be picked by hand. And so one way uh, that the Bracero program played out is that there was a shift away from any type of agriculture that had to be hand-picked towards a certain set of fruits and vegetables that could be easily harvested by machine. Yeah, I I think this kind of shows why the story is more complicated than just, well, you can just automate it away. Not everything can be automated away. Some things are better when done by workers or are at least different. So you write, for example, that the automation of some of these agricultural processes might even have been responsible for shifting the American palates of the 1960s and 1970s towards blander, less healthy food. So that rather than eating that fresh produce, like you know strawberries, other kinds of vegetables, asparagus, that had to be picked by hand, they ended up shifting towards eating things like frozen veggies, you know, peas and corn, because those were easier to make, to produce using machines, using automation. And so there's this idea that if you automate things away, that like that just replaces one for one the work that was being done before. But that's not at all the case, because the automation doesn't replace the work that was being done one to one. Instead, what ends up happening is that you raise the cost of the produce that was being picked by hand and you lower the cost of other kinds of things. So you end up shifting the consumption options 
that people have. And in this case, not for the better. So it's just this really interesting dynamic, but it requires people to sort of think a few steps ahead rather than just think immediately towards, well, this can be automated away. Right. I think the simplistic view is, well, if we don't have immigrant workers, then wages will have to rise and those higher wages will go to U.S.-born workers. And instead, what often happens is if wages did have to rise sufficiently so that U.S.-born workers would come to the fields, that would not have been profitable for farmers. They simply would have gone out of business. And so that option was never taken. Instead, we see farmers shifting towards the types of crops that they could produce and still make a a bit of a profit. And those were the ones that could be produced by machine. And so a lot of what we might anticipate to happen if we're thinking only one step ahead ends up not happening uh, when we look at the real world and we take a look at the data. Yeah, there's another complex dynamic that's possible here. And it has to do with an option that you mentioned a second ago, which is that companies also have the choice of outsourcing their work if they can't find the workers that they're looking for in the U.S. So if you restrict immigration, for example, to a farm in California, and there are stories of this actually happening, by the way, if you if you make it harder for workers to migrate from, say, Mexico or Central America to farms in California, well, the people who run those farms might just end up outsourcing the production of the food that they were going to make to Mexico itself. They might just set up a farm in Mexico and then import the food instead. It's not necessarily the case that they're going to hire U.S.-born workers. But this also has another effect, which is that if you allow the immigrants to come to the U.S. and make the food here and work on the farms here, then you're also building a local economy because those immigrants don't just come here to work. They also come here to live or sometimes they they might live with family. They might bring their families eventually. And so there's a local economy where they are providing demand for things like housing and furniture and cars. And they're going to be developing local economic ecosystems as well. And when that work, which could be done here, is outsourced instead, you might be sacrificing that. You might be sacrificing that local economy. And so it just has all these interesting kind of second or third order effects that I think people need to think about because it doesn't just stop at we don't have the workers here. We can just automate it all away. Right. So I think. People jokingly say that if you talk about an Econ 101 lecture and you think about immigration, just the kind of classic story that you hear as a freshman in college, the idea is nothing else changes, but with immigration, we have a greater supply of workers. So if we have more workers running around but the same number of jobs, then wages have to fall. But the very first thing you can add to the story, and in something I actually added with my Econ 101 students this very semester, is, well, each immigrant that comes to the U.S. is not just a worker, they're also a consumer. So if they're a consumer and they're buying local products, then it's not just that there's more workers running around, there's also more demand at the same time. And at that point, you really don't know what's going to happen to wages. They might go down But actually, wages might go up with just that very simple model in mind. And if we instead take the work that immigrants would have done here, and we have that work done somewhere else, maybe across the border in Mexico, then we're going to get the added supply of workers indirectly, because that's work that's taking place abroad, but the products are coming here. But we're not going to get the added local demand. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, you you, you also mentioned that although the Bracero program itself uh, was never resurrected, its effects were somewhat replicated by the introduction of the H-2A visa, uh, I believe, in the 2000s. And then you write uh, avocados, microgreens, organic berries. You know, we live in an era of food discovery again and healthy food discovery. And part of that has also been enabled by more recent agricultural workers uh, who migrated here from other countries. Yes, I think about uh, um, my own research on my, in my daily life all the time. When I'm grocery shopping, I think about what are the range of food that's available to us now and what was the range of food that was available when I was a kid. And then I give my parents a little bit of forgiveness for what they served us as kids because <laughs> we're actually all living you know, in an economy and in a context that is much bigger than just ourselves. But even with what we're able to buy today, we have to think this has something to do with our immigration policy. What surprised you? 
about doing this project? What I was most surprised by is just the common American story that we can see when we put the data together over 100 years. You know, I really had bought into this nostalgic view about the immigrants from Ellis Island and thought, well, maybe they had benefits because they were European and they were white. Uh, maybe it's not their own hard work necessarily, but somehow that they were able to really get ahead. And these days, things are harder. And I think the immigrant experience has always been hard, and there's always been a bit of a, a slow start uh, for immigrants who come to the U.S., don't speak the language, and don't have the necessary skills. So there's a bit of upward mobility in the first generation, but just a bit. And it's really just the um, explosion of upward mobility for the children of immigrants. Just how common that story was across a century and across very different immigration regimes, this period of open borders 100 years ago, and a period of a lot more immigration restriction today, there's something about the common immigrant experience that really tells the American story. All right. I, I think that's a great place to leave it. The book is called Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. And I got to say, Leah, it's a really beautiful work of scholarship and original scholarship. There's a lot in here that's new and insightful and surprising and that follows the data, as all good scholarship does. So thanks for that. And thanks especially for being on The New Bazaar. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for this week. You can find a link to Streets of Gold and other work by Leah Bustan and Ron Abramitsky in the show notes for today's episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and Canadian immigrant Amy Keene, who executive produces the show and who deserves to walk on streets paved with gold. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Another reminder that if you've got a question that you'd like us to answer in our upcoming Q&A episode, please email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com, or you can find me on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia. And as always, please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice, and while you're there, leave us a review or tell a friend so that people can find out about us and we can keep making the show. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next week. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.